Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, what kind of scotch would fetch more than $200,000 a bottle? Well, one bottle of Macallan, aged more than 80 years, and there are only 288 of them on the planet, is up for auction later this month in BC, and it's expected to fetch more than that. We look into why. We look into the fast-moving world of fast food, where automation and artificial intelligence are now on the menu as they increasingly move towards drive-through, pickup, and delivery, and away from those traditional restaurants that we would have remembered as kids. And we also look into why the price of snacks like chips and chocolate are rising so fast. Turns out consumers are willing to pay more for little luxuries in tough times, and the companies that make those products know that full well. But first, just weeks after the federal government and the Ontario government announced billions in subsidies to lure Volkswagen and a new battery plant to the province, one of the world's biggest car makers, Stellantis, says it can pull the plug on a major battery factory set for Windsor, Ontario if it doesn't get more money from Ottawa. It's put the Trudeau government in a tough spot, either forced to dish out more cash or risk losing the project. We're going to head to Ontario because this was entirely predictable, wasn't it? When the federal government announced huge subsidies to Volkswagen uh, to build a battery plant at St. Thomas, Ontario, uh, I think people were understood that that was the price to pay. But it was a you know it was a big deal. But they also you also thought, okay, well, what kind of precedent is this going to set? Who else is going to want subsidies of that kind? And of course, the um, Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. that's pouring billions upon billions upon billions of dollars of subsidies into new technologies and so on has really changed the game a lot. And for Canada, we're kind of stuck in a situation thinking, do we want to hold on to these things and then therefore subsidize them and compete that way? Or do we want to let it go? Right. And and I don't think there's a good answer here. So today, uh, one of the world's largest automakers said it had stopped construction on a $5 billion electrical electric vehicle battery plant in Windsor, Ontario, saying Ottawa had not delivered on what was promised. Stellantis, which makes Chrysler, Ram, Fiat cars, amongst others, and the South Korean battery maker, LG Energy Solution, announced the plant last year. It's expected to create some 2,500 jobs. Uh, All levels of government poured money into this. The amounts were not disclosed at the time. But Stellantis now says the feds have not held up their end of the bargain. They uh, released a statement today saying, as of today, the Canadian government has not delivered on what was agreed to. Therefore, Stellantis and LG Energy Solution will begin implementing their contingency plans, which essentially, I gather, means not going ahead with the plant. Now, again, it was announced almost a year ago, but since then, the U.S. offered those massive new subsidies I was talking about. And then we announced a deal for a Volkswagen battery plant worth up to $13 billion in production subsidies over a decade. This, of course, came up today in the House of Commons. Here's what the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, had to say. Now, when it comes to Stellantis, we are very supportive of this investment, and I am absolutely confident that we're going to get a deal. But I also want to point out that the resources of the federal government are not infinite. Indeed. Uh, Premier Doug Ford wants Ottawa to do more. It really worries me. You know, we we need the uh, federal government to step up, uh, as they did for Volkswagen. We'll go toe-to-toe with any state uh, down in the United States. The only thing we can't do is go toe-to-toe with the U.S. federal government. That's the Canadian, uh, the, the federal Canadian government's job. 
But do we want to be going toe-to-toe with the U.S. government on these things? Is that how we want to build this industry, by pouring tons of taxpayer money into it? Joining me now with more on this is Greg Mordew. He's an associate professor in the Faculty of Engineering at McMaster University. He spent a long time in the automotive industry. Uh, Greg, thanks for your time. No problem at all. So this doesn't come as a huge surprise. I mean, obviously, a, a company like Stellantis will look at what was given to a company like Volkswagen and say, um, well, <laughs> now that we know what the price to play is, you know, uh, why don't you help us out? What's your understanding of what's happened here? Because it, it feels like they've upped the ante, but have they not got what they, what they were promised or have they simply seen what Volkswagen got and raised the stakes? Well, I think it's the, I think you're absolutely right on the ladder and al- on the ladder uh, projection of what's going on. I mean, I'm not, obviously I'm not a party of the, to the uh, discussions, but I have, been I have watched these a lot as an as an as an academic over the years, and frankly, I've participated in them as well as a as a in the industry. Right, and uh, and I think we can anticipate that that's exactly what's happened. You know, that it sounds a little like the like the the classroom. It's no fair. I mean, they got this, and we want that. But I think we all could have predicted this if we thought about it very hard. The the moment that Volkswagen. Um, was awarded somewhere between 13 and uh, 15 billion dollars for their uh, investment in St. Thomas, Ontario. Stellantis certainly upped the ante, though, because last week it was sort of rumors. I gather now the Toronto Star is reporting there was, in fact, a letter to the Prime Minister uh, last month, April 19th, that basically warned that this might happen uh, right after the, the St. Thomas announcement, ironically, or not, not ironically. Um, so they've actually threatened to scrap this. Is, is that feasible? Well, I think it's quite feasible. I mean, the reality is uh, uh, Stellantis probably has a couple of hundred million dollars put into this uh, this uh, battery factory in Windsor, Ontario, and that includes probably the land and just the uh, early start of construction of the plant. But frankly, building a, a, a facility of this nature, the land and the building itself is uh, is the smallest part of the equation. They are sunk costs that they can easily abandon. The uh, billions of dollars comes later, and frankly, they can they can afford to walk away from a couple hundred million dollars in sunk costs to uh, to avail themselves of several billion dollars of incentives in. Uh, in the U.S., and, right, right across the right, right across the river, yeah. right. I mean, literally, that's that's the problem here. This is kind of it feels a bit like I mean, as an outsider, it feels like a bit of a race to the bottom when it comes to subsidies, right? They, they can go wherever the subsidies are the highest. Well, listen, up until about a year ago, uh, I mean, the iconic investment in the automotive industry was an assembly plant, and somehow over the last twelve months, it shifted from an assembly plant. To a battery plant, and a battery plant is just a, a form of propulsion. I mean, it's it's interesting and it's current and it's relevant, but it's not really any more fundamental to a vehicle than an internal combustion engine plant. And we've had those in Canada for uh, for for generations, and we didn't make a fuss over them. And to get those assembly plants that we're talking about. Canada and Ontario would typically spend $500, $700 million and that for about 20% of the capital cost. Now we're prepared to spend 200% of the capital cost for a battery plant. And I'm not at all convinced that the spinoff benefits are as uh, substantial as they are for an assembly plant. It will be embarrassing if the government of Canada can't pull this back 
it will be embarrassing to the government of Canada and I suppose the a, a source of uh, anxiety for the province of Ontario and the city of Windsor, but they will not be on the hook for another ten billion dollars, and this is the issue that they're that they're wrestling with right now. And I'm sure that over the last uh, few days, they've had some difficult conversations in, around caucus and the uh, cabinet room about what are we going to do about Stellantis because we're already into this for $15 billion with, uh, with Volkswagen. With Volkswagen. So I mean, this is, uh, yeah, this is difficult. It is because, I mean, if you look at it just, I mean, from, from there through their political lens, this is 2,500 jobs. It was supposed to open next year. Um, you know, this was going to be the other temp, the other sort of centerpiece of, of this, you know, green industry, new, new path forward. And here they may actually lose it <laughs> and they're going to get blamed for it. If they lose it too, they're going to get blamed for having given Volkswagen too much money and not thought about what the repercussions might be if Stellantis came to the table and said, we want that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they should have known this at the outset, but uh, but uh, this is the uh, the high stakes game that they're playing, and it's not going in their favor right now. I mean, this has always been a challenge, and it's always defied logic from from my perspective. I understand the argument that the the U.S. should invest heavily in their auto industry and make these kinds of uh, um, breathtaking investments. It's, but the industry in the U.S. is different than the automotive industry in Canada. In the in the U.S., it's dominated by companies like General Motors and Ford and Stellantis and and Tesla, whose headquarters are in the U.S. And so, when the U.S. government invests or supports those companies, they're getting a deep and full value chain, supplier chain. They're getting all the most knowledge-intensive work that's going. They're propping up all the most knowledge-intensive work, all of the R and D, all of the uh, the headquarters-type activities, all of the headquarters-type activities that that gravitate from the supplier community, including Canadian headquartered suppliers, all find their most of their R&D work happening across the uh, road from their uh, automaker uh, customers. In Canada, when we invest you know, $10 billion or $15 billion on a battery plant, we get a battery plant and maybe a few suppliers. We don't get all of the, the uh, knowledge-intensive work that uh, in high-value work that is typically uh, associated with headquarters, and the headquarters are in the U.S., we had to pay it if we wanted that plant, but boy, we paid a price. Greg Mordew is an associate professor in the Faculty of Engineering at McMaster University. We're talking about Stellantis today, the huge automaker, um, the, one of the world's largest, uh, essentially telling Ottawa and uh, and the Ontario government that they're going to pull the plug on this major factory, battery factory they were looking at building in uh, southwestern Ontario in Windsor, 2,500 jobs. It was going to be a big deal. It was sort of considered, considered a companion uh, project to the big Volkswagen one that was just announced uh, last month in uh, St. Thomas, Ontario, earlier this month. Um, Greg, where to now? I mean, clearly... I think a lot of a lot of people pointed out from the beginning that if you're going to get into a subsidy war uh, with the U.S., you're going to be in deep trouble because they have a lot more money than we do. Is that is that what's happening here, or is Ottawa simply going to have to say, sort of sit, put a bottom line on this and say we're not spending more than this? I'm sure that this was not easy for Stellantis to do. I mean, no no firm or auto company wants to uh, take a, a, a U-turn, if you will, on it 
on an investment announcement. It'll be very difficult for the Stellantis Canada people that have to deal with this. Their headquarters, their, their Stellantis Canada headquarters being at the uh, foot of, uh, of of the main street in Windsor, Ontario, where all this is, is, is shaking down. So it'll be difficult for them. But the reality is Stellantis, as I said, have a couple hundred million dollars, and I'm guessing into that that facility in Windsor, the battery plant so far, they would have uh, several billion dollars to go as they start to equip it with machinery and equipment and, and uh, hiring 2,500 people and training all of those people and getting ready for start of production in another uh, year or year or year and a half or so. So it'll be difficult for them. But they have options, and the options are right across the border in in Michigan or in Indiana, as the case may be. It will be much, much more difficult for the uh, government of Canada because they really are backed into a corner on this. And, and, and this brinkmanship, the brinksmanship that obviously Stellantis has decided to play is going to cause them to uh, fish or cut bait and say, okay, we're in this for, we were in, we thought we were into this for $500 million a year ago. I guess we're into it for 10 billion now. And if they don't go in for 10 billion, they're going to lose, they'll probably lose that plant. They'll, and they will lose the aura of, of success that was attached to the, uh, that they had find that they found a way to attach to the Volkswagen plant as well. So, you know, they, they've spent, They'll spend billions and billions of dollars and not get the uh, the uh, political or policy gain that they had anticipated out of all of this. So it's a very difficult uh, decision that uh, that the government of Canada is confronted with right yeah, now. Yeah, Doug Ford wasn't sounding too happy today about this. The government of Ontario has been quite lucky in the sense it doesn't feel like they've had to pony up too too much money for this stuff so far. Well, it's really it, it's really interesting what the government. I mean, the government of Ontario is, has played this very interesting in a really interesting way. I mean. Unlike in the U.S., traditionally, the, the the process in Canada have been for assembly for assembly plans or for automotive investments. It's the government of Canada will take half of the incentive, and the government of Ontario will take half of the incentive, and and there's the package, and that's what they thought they were in in um, position to do with Stellantis a year ago or LG Stellantis a year ago, 500 million or so from the province of Ontario, 500 million or so from the government of Canada. Now, the uh, they found, you know, Doug Ford is saying, well, we want to follow the uh, U.S. program. And so we're into this for about $500 million, like the, uh, like the, the U.S. states, our, our equivalent would be. And the government of Canada needs to be into this for seven or ten billion dollars to to to, uh, to be equivalent with the U.S. federal government. So this fifty-fifty thing has uh, gone out the window. And uh, Doug Ford is conveniently for him saying, "Where are you, uh, Mr. Trudeau, on your commitment to uh, Windsor and uh, yeah, to to jobs and is- and industrial growth in, in in Windsor? I mean, it's a, you're right; it's a tough spot. Greg Mordew, thank you so much. Thank you. You know, for, for Canadian hockey fans, uh, I was in Montreal. I grew up in Montreal. Obviously, I was in Montreal in 1993 when uh, the Canadians won that last Stanley Cup. And I thought to myself, listen, I'm not going to give the Canadians a hard time for another decade because this was such a shock win. But I wonder which Canadian team will win the next one because it'll have to be one of them fairly soon. Um, Calgary still looked good. The Oilers were still a pretty good team. Lots of, uh, there were lots of good looking teams at that point. Uh, and the Leafs had come off a good season. Well, here we are. 
30 years later, this is how the last Canadian team season ended last night. Tears at Jack Michaels with the curtain call on the Oilers season. And this series is over. Vegas has won game six, five to two. And the Golden Knights, despite being outshot 41-22, deal Edmonton their first back-to-back losses in two and a half months. And with those back-to-back losses, Edmonton's tremendous season is over. Yeah, I mean, that's what it boiled down to. They'd come in on a hot streak. They looked great. The avalanche were out. I mean, the Bruins had been eliminated. Things were starting to fall into place. You could kind of think, well, it's a bit like 93, right? Some good teams left. Anyway, Edmonton forward Leon Dreisaitl, who uh, scored 13 goals. I mean, he was on his way to uh, 13 goals in, in, the, in the two series that he played. said he was devastated that uh, the Oilers were eliminated this year. When you start a season, you're, you're in it to win it. We're at that stage. If you don't complete that, then it just feels like a failure or, or a wasted year almost. So that hurts. Yeah, and it came, of course, just 48 hours after Toronto also went down in five to Florida, the Eastern Conference semi, meaning lots of Canadians still playing for the Cup. I think there are five Manitobans on the Golden Knights alone, but no Canadian teams. At least GM Kyle Dubas faced the media today and had this to say. I definitely don't have it in me to go anywhere else. So it'll either be here or it'll be taking time to recalibrate, reflect on the seasons here. But you won't see me next week pop up elsewhere. I, don't, I can't put them through that after this year. Yeah, it's been tough on his family, he was saying. So we're into the post-mortem phase of the season for all Canadians. By the way, the Dallas Stars have just beaten Seattle 2-1 to in Game 7. So Dallas will play Vegas, and uh, Carolina's playing Florida. All places where it really doesn't snow much, if you think about it. So you think back 30 years, the Canadians win the Cup. Gary Bettman hands the uh, Cup over to Guy Carboneau, and that's the last time a Canadian team's done that. Um, most of the players still fighting for the Cup this year weren't even born then. Um and it, you know, it's just a reminder. Here, I, I had high expect. I'll be honest with you, I had high expectations this year. I thought this was the year that Edmonton or Toronto were going to do it, but I wasn't alone. Joining me now is Reed Wilkins. He's host of Inside Sports on six thirty. Ched in Edmonton. Reed, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm sure you were prepping for Game Seven. I mean, everyone thought, listen, this has been such a back and forth series. I love that Edmonton team. Uh, it was sad to see them go down last night. Well, it was, and I think that's the overwhelming feeling in the city and in oil country today is sadness. And I contrast to la- that to last year when the Oilers made it further and were swept in the Western Conference Final of Colorado, and there was a, a little bit more um, – it, it was just a better feeling. I, I mean, the Oilers uh, – won over L.A. in the first round last year in seven games. They won game six on the road to force game seven after giving up nine goals in the first game against Calgary in the second round. They won the first Battle of Alberta since 1991. And then they played a Colorado team that was favored all year long, and they were supposed to win. You know, so it was kind of like, all right, you know, we beat Calgary. We made it further than as we've had since 2006. This is kind of what the fan base was thinking. Pretty good arrow up for next year and then this was next year and it was pretty good especially in the second half I mean they rarely lost they didn't lose back-to-back games they were 14-0-1 down the stretch they made a couple good trades to get Matias Ekholm and Nick Bugstad and it wasn't supposed to end not only this early but this way you know in a series that uh, they didn't play well in a couple of games 
They, you know, their their young up and coming goalie got pulled four times in the playoffs, including three against Vegas, and then you know they ran into a hot goalie last night in Aiden Hill. So it is it is pretty sad. I mean, I, I was asked earlier today how disappointing is it, and I said that I think it's one of the most disappointing Oilers seasons ever. Uh, certainly yeah. the most disappointing one since '06, and even that one was a bit of a Cinderella out of nowhere thing. Like this is. This was the first time since probably the late 80s where you went into the playoffs and you, the Oilers would have been on a short list of teams picked by a lot of people to win the Stanley Cup. Especially when the seas started to part and Boston disappeared and Colorado disappeared. You're starting to think, you know, wait a second. <laughs> this could be, you know, for both Canadian teams, really, that this could be the year where, you know, the, because the Canadian, you know, having watched that whole 93 series, it takes a lot of luck in the playoffs, too. Like, you need things to bounce your way. You need some opponents you don't play too well against to disappear. And it felt like this year that was starting to happen. Like, I like the Edmonton's chances against either Dallas or, or, I mean, it'll be Dallas, but either Dallas or Seattle. And I like the chances against Florida and Carolina, too. Like, it looked like the path was there. I think that's what's so disappointing for the, for the Leafs, too. The Leafs, too. See, I, I see this differently, but I, I don't think that way. I, like, I, I don't think about the path. I think about the team right. that they're playing. So right. when Boston went out, because a lot of people ask me this, well, it's more wide open for Edmonton. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, the Boston Bruins or the East champion is two series away. You know, so I, I never really thought that. I, I Maybe a little bit with Colorado, because they're on the same side of the draw. And you, right. you you potentially could have played them next. But my counter to that is, it's like, okay, well, if Boston's so good, what about the team that beat Boston? And, I mean, look, we've all seen the video of Leafs fans being mocked because they were chanting, we want Florida. And what yeah, happened there? they got there? them all right. They, they got, got them, them right. and, and, and they're yeah. out. And Florida's a very good team. So I, I understand what you're saying. And, yes, mm-hmm. to tie that back to 1993, Pittsburgh that I think won 17 of their last 18 games that year lost in the second round to the Islanders. So the Canadians didn't have to face them on the way to the Stanley cup, but that was, that was a team they would have played in the next round, not a month from now. So, you know, I think for the Oilers, they, you know, they, 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 to me, they were good enough to do it regardless of who they could have played. I mean, they went into Boston and won a game late in the regular season. They'd done well against Vegas they just didn't put it together at the right time. Yeah. The one thing that I, that I, I mean, thinking back to the long, to the 30-year drought and some of the reasons that have come up for it, the one thing that I found interesting watching uh, both the, uh, the remaining Canadian teams this year is that if you looked at the lineups, uh, unlike, say, 20 years ago, you know, four or five of the best players in the league were on those two teams, were on Edmonton or Toronto, which is an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic that wasn't really the case, say, in the early 2000s when there was that other long, uh, or late 1990s when there was that other long drought that we were, the beginnings of the drought. Um, it'll be interesting to see if those teams stay together next year, whether whether all the all the pieces are still there, because obviously, especially in Toronto, there's a lot of questions being asked. Well, a couple things out of that. And I think you make a good point. If you look at the rosters going back to the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was at the point where, except Toronto, the other Canadian teams simply couldn't afford to be good. Even Montreal, you know, was not able to always afford and attract big-name players. I mean, the Leafs, um, you know, went to the conference finals, uh, what I think, oh, two, when Carolina wound up going to the cup final. They, they had some other good teams. But Edmonton specifically, if you look at, 
you know, they started missing the playoffs in, in the 90s. They would get in as a 7 or 8 seed. They had a couple of magical first-round upsets over Dallas or Colorado, but just didn't have the horses to go any further. And, and the story of that Oilers era was, A, all the team almost moved, don't forget, a couple times, yep. Houston, yeah. et cetera. Yep. And, but, you know, players left. Well, they got Doug Waite. Well, Doug Waite's traded. Well, you got Bill Guerin. Well, Bill Guerin's traded. Well, you got Curtis Joseph. Well, Curtis Joseph had to leave. Like, you couldn't afford guys, right? So the, so the cap world did help the Canadian teams. And obviously in the first year of the cap, that's that's when the Oilers, you know, had Chris Pronger and Mike Pekka and traded for Rolison and went to the went to the Stanley Cup final. The, the, it's interesting about keeping these teams together. Um, I, I know we always get some of that whenever the Oilers go through a rough spell or are, are eliminated. Well, Lou and Connor will want to leave. Yeah. I don't know. I, I we'll see. And, and the one thing I would say to that, Ben, is how how do you know that these players are linking the success of the team to their future with the team? Like I, I often say this: Well, Connor and Leon are going to want to leave if they don't win. And I'll say, okay, well, what if they make what if they make the playoffs five years in a row and, and go to the conference finals three times? Like, is that an, is that failure? Like it's not the cop, but it's not failure. The other side of that is like Leon Dreisaitl is really good. If he's not the second best player in the NHL, he's in the top five. What if his contract expires and he's just like, sorry, Oilers, you're paying Connor all this money. You can't afford me. Even if they want a cup or two, right? So it's, it's a lot yeah, more no. complex than, than just the success of the team. I think. Reed Wilkins is with us, host of Inside Sports on 630 Chad in Edmonton. They, of course, are the broadcaster of the Edmonton Oilers. We're wrapping up. Both Canadian teams are gone. It happened over the weekend. If you were not a close hockey fan, both Friday night for Toronto and last night for the Edmonton Oilers, that means no Canadian team left in the playoffs, no Canadian team in the Final Four. Reed, do you think we make too much of this whole Canadian drought thing? I mean, I think the reason why it is, and you'll remember your Cups in Edmonton, and I remember the Cups in Montreal. When a Canadian team wins a Cup, it is an absolute, it's pandemonium. It's fantastic. And I think we've kind of forgotten that. And I, I, I look forward to seeing the next Canadian city erupt when they win, when they win at all. Well, let me put it to you this way. How do you think Brazil would feel if the United States won the World Cup in soccer? You know, like it'd be sort of the same thing. It's, yeah. And I think that's, it, it is, and yes, of course, there are hockey fans in American cities. And yes, there are, of course, the original six teams or teams that have had or cities that have had teams for a long time. I don't want to poo-poo that and do this. I'm a Canadian hockey fan on my pedestal type thing. Yeah. But it but it is deeper. Like I, I, like I told you earlier, the... The whole mood in Edmonton just felt weird today. Like it, like things were off, you know. And yeah. and, and then, and <laughs> you, you, everybody saw the pictures from the the Ice District Plaza Moss Pit, as they called it. And then there was another tailgate party outside. Then there was another one in a place called Churchill Square in Edmonton. By the way, Rogers Place was full for the road games. So it's it is next level in Canada. So I I do think it's worth. I don't think you can just say, oh, it's just 32 franchises. Who cares what what country they're in? It It is different in Canada. It, it would be different. And, and it, like you said about players not being born, like generations of fans, I mean, what, anybody younger than 35 can't remember a Canadian Basically. cup? Like, can't even imagine what it would be like? Like, my... My my mother asked me in the first round, like, what's it going to be like if the Oilers win? 
And I said, Mom, like, people are going to cry. Like, I, that'll yeah. be the, it, it'll be tears of joy. And, and you know, you hope, that, of course, there'd be celebrations and you hope it, w- it won't get out of hand, you know, like we, we saw when uh, Vancouver lost that one year and, you know, there's big scenes like that. But I just think it would be, like, I, I honestly think it might be a little bit of disbelief for that fan base, whoever it is, because it has been so long or a couple of cities, I guess, what, three cities that have never won it. And everybody else is thirty years or longer. So I, I do think it is it is a story. It's not the story, but I I, I do think that you know we got to count it out. Like it is it is significant. It's thirty years. That's and now it's a, kind of going against the law of averages, isn't it, Ben? I now mean, it's going to teams see, of the you, league. Like if you put yeah. all the teams in a hat and drew them out, <laughs> you should get yeah, a Canadian I, I, team I, more I, often than actually playing, right? And without any real dynasties in that period, like a few, I mean, obviously Detroit had a great run, Chicago had a great run, but uh, but we haven't had like a, an 80s Oilers or an 80s Islanders or a 70s Canadians in that run either. So there hasn't been one team kind of dominating. It's been a bit, a lot of sort of strange teams have won the cup over all that time. I mean, Carolina have won a cup, the you know, Tampa won more than a few. I guess they're a bit of a dynasty. But it's odd to look at the four teams. Like, if you're a – no offense to the four teams that are left, but if you look at, at the hockey finals and, you, and the, you know, the final four and you see Carolina, Florida, Vegas, Dallas, you're like, yeah, it doesn't snow much in any, any of those places. But anyway, uh, you can't complain. I mean, you can, but no one's going to listen. Well, yeah, but it's – I mean, and those fans will say, okay, does, does Carolina have – millions of fans like the Leafs do or the Oilers do. No, but no. The, the stadium's pretty, the arena's pretty loud, like the Caniacs, yeah. they call them. They got their own thing. So those people are saying, well, you know, we, we deserve, we deserve. I mean, I remember this in uh, 91 and 92. You probably remember yep. the stuff out of the States. What, what Blue Jays, why, what? How, yeah, they, they flew fair. the flag upside right. down. They flew yeah, the flag upside flew, down. <laughs> you know, but that. it was it was it was fun for Blue Jays fans and most Canadians. Yeah. And then the Raptors won an NBA title, which was you know yep. which was great as well. So it's funny to think that we've won more World Series and NBA titles than we've won Stanley Cups in the past thirty years. Uh, well, yeah, well, that's yeah. just well, one. I, I think that no, it was off Joe a year Carter, with the Jays. 92-93, right? Yeah, yeah. And then and then ninety three, ninety four, they won again, right? With Joe Car with Joe Carter's walk off. Uh, Wasn't that the year after against the Phillies and 90, Mitch, Mitch Williams? What what were the years now? Yeah, well, I could Google it while we. <laughs> 90, I think it was 92-93, was it? Yeah, yeah. So they they won. Yeah, I guess they won later in ninety three. Well, anyway, it doesn't. That yeah, being all, I think I understand. Yeah, it's close. It's close. Um, you know, well. I, I guess the, the the million dollar question then is is are any of those Canadian teams do they look like I mean I think Edmonton could still be a contender next year I don't know about the Leafs we'll see but uh, but I think Edmonton still has has horses for next season um, I'm I'm praying that it could be it could be next year how's that Well I still think it's Edmonton and Toronto that have the best chances I mean that Winnipeg team might be taken apart um, I think Ottawa is improving, but as we've seen, it's still there's still several steps to get there. Uh, I think Montreal, you know, still a ways so, so. away. Yeah. You know, we'll see what Vancouver does. I mean, there was some promise after they brought in Tockett, but a year ago there was some promise after they brought in Boudreaux. So, you know, <laughs> you don't we'll know see. there. So, I, I I still think it's it's Edmonton and, and Toronto the the two best chances. Yeah. 
And this year we'll see a Stanley Cup parade somewhere where it's probably going to be like 35 degrees Celsius. So that's going to be going to be interesting. Uh, Reed, uh, congratulations on another season of uh, of sport of, of Oilers hockey. I'm sorry it ended earlier than everyone had hoped, but um, you know, we'll, well, I guess we'll be back in back in the back in the fall or back in the late summer. Yeah, back in the fall. We got uh, we renewed for three more years on Chet. So uh, we'll, we'll see let's see what they can do next time around. Thanks a lot for having me. Nice to have you along on this Monday night. We've been talking about Canada's 30-year cup drought. We were trying, we were trying to figure out dates. You know what that happens when you go back so far. Whether we would, a Canadian team had won a World Series more more recently than we would win a Stanley Cup. And Josie was nice enough to uh, to send in the dates. We were remembering the dates. 1993 October, the Jays beat the Phillies to win uh, to win the World Series. Joe Carter's walk-off homer uh, there, and that was in October of 1993. Whereas Canada's last Stanley Cup is the Montreal Canadiens in June of 93. So indeed, if I have my facts straight, we've won a World Series and an NBA title and a Major League Soccer title more recently than we've won, uh, can I call it our Stanley Cup? The Stanley Cup. Also, I've been asking you tonight about uh, one fast food item that you could not, that you would choose if you had to choose just one. Say you were offered one fast food item. That's the only one you could have. I was saying earlier that I kind of leaned towards the McDonald's quarter pounder with cheese, but uh, it, it's a bit of a toss up. Uh, Wendy's Baconator, says Josie, and the Burger King Whopper with cheese. Those are both very good too. We're going to be talking about fast food in the next hour. There's a bit of a theme to this hour, so Stick around for the whole thing. You'll, I learned a lot, and I'm sure you will too. One thing I've noticed recently is just how expensive snacks are. And by snacks, I mean like chips and that stuff. You go to, I mean, it's been the playoffs, right? So you can go and get stuff like that every now and then. Even the sort of no-name stuff is really expensive now. So your cho- you know, chocolate bars, chips, whatever it is that you like to get, it's all gotten really expensive. Now, I understand, uh, given what's going on with inflation, that, you know, costs to produce this stuff too and so on. And then I was reading uh, recently that all those major companies, PepsiCo, Coke, uh, Nestle, Hershey, they've all made huge profits recently without selling much more. So that has to lead you to think, well, what exactly is going on here, right? So the thought is that they've been sort of raising prices a little bit more than they've had to because they can. Everything else is going up, right? Uh, So that they've been raising prices a little bit more. I think they actually basically admitted to it. They use different words. They use sort of corporate terms to explain it. Uh, But yeah, it was way up. What was it for Nestle? 9.3% in the last quarter. Uh, PepsiCo was 10%. Coca-Cola organic revenues grew 12% last quarter. Um, even as unit case volumes only grew by three. Hershey uh, was similar. They sold more than $2.9 billion worth of candy bars last quarter, an increase of more than 12% in dollar terms. But the volume of products was only up 3%. So there obviously it has to be have something to do with pricing or maybe there's less in that package that's another thing we've been talking about as well so how is it that companies are making big profits while raising prices and you know shrinking package sizes shrinkflation we call it well it turns out that junk food or snacks occupy a pretty special place in the consumer world they're an affordable luxury one that doesn't seem to follow the rules they're in it they're inelastic is what it is how it's put and the companies know that so to explain is Jan Cornhill. He's an associate professor of marketing and behavioral science at the Sauter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Jan, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. 
So it's not our imagination. I know lots of people have been writing about it. The latest was people in Toronto complaining about the price of sort of those no-name bags of chips have gone way, way up. But but we have noticed a significant increase in the price of what we like to call junk food or snack food, if you prefer. Yes, indeed. Uh, so uh, most of the retailers, most of the distributors and manufacturers of uh, junk food, processed foods have uh, increased their prices quite significantly. So among the manufacturers, uh, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola Company, uh, Frito-Lay, Hershey's, they have all uh, increased their prices even more than the rest of the product categories, more than the, the core inflation. And by doing so, they have also uh, increased uh, significantly their, their, their sales revenue. Demand has remained uh, really insensitive to this increase in prices. It's interesting that they would, I, I guess, in some ways, they've and not not to accuse them of too many nefarious practices, but they've used the cover of inflation because prices of everything were going up to raise their prices even more. I mean, you notice it when you go to the store, the prices of certain things, especially sort of processed junky food, have gone up a lot, like a lot significantly. Yes, that's true. So those uh, manufacturers, they, they have seen, of course, an increase in their cost, right? The ingredients, right. Uh, energy transportation, distribution, uh, manpower costs have increased. So for those manufacturers, they could decide to increase their prices uh, to the same amount as the increase in, of, their, uh, of their cost. But most of the time, they will increase the prices even more. Uh, and by doing, doing so, they increase their margins, they increase their profitability. And of course, uh, they, uh, they give satisfaction to the stockholders, right? They maintain the value of their stocks. They, they can afford doing that because the demand remains insensitive. If you see that you can increase your prices and consumers keep buying your products, uh, it's a strong economic incentive to uh, continue increasing the prices, increasing the profitability, and uh, and give always satisfaction to the financial markets. Yeah, it certainly is. It, it amazes me, for instance, that that gas station. Let's take the gas station with with the store in it as the perfect example. That someone will drive around for for many many minutes looking for for a few you know a penny off a liter of gas. But they think nothing of, of, of spending, you know, much more than you would normally spend on soda or chips or chocolate in the in the same grocery store on the way out the door. It's odd how that works. You you've looked into this. It's, it's sort of it's it's the behavioral science of, of of how you of how you approach this. Yes. So there's many things to say. I think there are many reasons why uh, demand remains uh, insensitive to the increase in price of snack foods. Uh, so to take the, uh, the example, your example of uh, gas prices, so prices are probably less comparable. So there are so many apps that you can use to compare the prices of gas. Right. Uh, so it's an, incent an incentive for consumers to try to find the best deal. But um, I think most importantly, uh, consumers have uh, have faced inflation for absolutely all categories of products, and they had to uh, cut down uh, their discretionary uh, expenditures. They had to uh, travel less, to buy less clothes, uh, to go less to the restaurant. And somehow snack foods, which remain uh, relatively cheap, uh, branded snack foods, they remain the last treat that uh, consumers allow themselves to buy. So in times when uh, uh, money gets tight, right, uh, consumers will continue treating themselves with uh, those uh, last small indulgences. Right? Right. And also there's a, there's a real brand attachment to uh, those popular brands uh, by uh, the, the companies that I mentioned, by PepsiCo, uh, Coca-Cola, Frito-Lay, Hershey's. And uh, 
uh, especially for junk foods, especially for processed foods, uh, consumers are probably less likely to trade down to the private labels. They will continue buying uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola even though the prices have increased, uh, rather than the private label or the no-name cola brand sold by, by your distributor. Right. I, I guess people are, you're right. They're, they're very, I mean, even if you think back to the, this goes back a while, if you think back to the cola wars of the eighties that in the early nineties, the people are very loyal to their brands. And I guess you're right. I, I, and the companies clearly uh, the companies themselves, whether it be Nestle or Hershey or PepsiCo, they all know this, right? They have, they must spend more than many other food companies on, on sort of marketing and be, and what you do behavioral science and so on to understand exactly who their customers are and how much they're willing to pay for their product. Exactly. So especially for those brands, there is a, a true uh, brand attachment, a true brand loyalty. So I teach marketing to undergraduate students and uh, every year we do uh, the same uh, the same test where I ask them, okay, which brand do you prefer, Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola? Right. And they all have a favorite brand, right? And they all think that they can uh, tell the difference between uh, Pepsi and Coca-Cola because they prefer one brand rather than another. And then when we do the blind test, when I try to oh, wow. differentiate yeah. Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola without knowing the brand, they can't make the difference. That's the power of branding, and that explains the loyalty and the attachment and the price markup that consumers are willing to pay for those products. Yann Cornell is an associate professor of marketing and behavioral science at the University of British Columbia. Yann, one gets the impression, and I'm sure the companies know this as well, though, that th- there's a lot of elasticity in, in how much they can charge, but it's not it's not infinite, right? At some point, people are going to say, I'm not paying that. And that's what I think we were starting to see with some of the backlash of late. Oddly enough, it was actually against house brands because the house brands have gone way up in price as well. Um, but it was, it was, you know, I, I think Maybe just maybe people are starting to maybe reach their limit when it comes to those to those price increases. So is there a limit to the increase in price that uh, those uh, snack food manufacturers uh, can uh, can charge? Again, uh, we're in an environment of really high inflation. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything becomes more expensive. Consumers had to cut down, had to uh, reduce their uh, their spending on all categories of products, in particular the uh, discretionary expenditures, like traveling less and going less to the restaurant. So, mm-hmm. so uh, as I mentioned, this is the last treat, the last indulgence that consumers can afford. But there's also something more about uh, uh, the fact that demand for snack foods junk foods remains insensitive to increase in price. True. And so in economic theory, there is a, a concept called the given good. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Given goods, these are uh, cheap products for which demand is insensitive to increase in price. And demand can sometimes even increase when price increases, which completely uh, violates the, the law of supply and <laughs> demand, right? It certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> So we observe this uh, given good effect, especially among lower income consumers. So everything becomes more expensive. Everything becomes less affordable. So for low income consumers, since uh, junk foods remain still relatively cheaper products, uh, these consumers will reduce their purchase of more expensive products and in particular fruits and, and vegetables that have seen a tremendous inflation as well and keep buying even more the relatively cheaper products, uh, the junk foods, the processed foods, the snack foods, that will remain, uh, uh, in comparison, cheaper than healthier options. 
Is there ever a period whereby a certain retailer looks at the landscape and thinks, I could, I mean, and you mentioned the brand loyalty, which would make this difficult, but where they think, and I think of like the Dollaramas and just how much they sell and think that there is, there is margins in there for, to make money if you charge less. Like there yeah, is a way so. to, there is a way to move into the market charging less that might be, the, the market might be ripe for it right now. If you look at President's Choice, for instance, mm-hmm. which is the private label of uh, a lot of uh, uh, supermarkets and grocery stores in Canada, what they have tried to do is uh, actually not to compete on price, but to try to build a brand. And even for their private label, which is still slightly cheaper than the, the, the most popular brands, uh, uh, the national brands, they will still, still try to charge a price markup for their, their private label in order to increase their profitability. So uh, there will be some heavy uh, discounters on the market, but they probably will try to capture another demand and they will have another price structure than uh, than most other actors, including private labels, including uh, President's Choice, for instance. Right. And of course, we haven't talked about shrinkflation, which everyone is talking about, the fact that there seems to be a lot more air in that bag of chips, even though you're paying more money money for it. So yes, uh, so so this is the, the usual trick for the for the food manufacturers. Like changing the price is not the first way in which uh, uh, manufacturers will try to maintain their margin. Usually, they will reduce the quantity in, inside the bag, inside the packaging, rather than increasing the price in order to maintain their margin. So that, that's usually the way that uh, those manufacturers uh, maintain their margins, reducing the quantity rather rather than increasing the prices. But they could do both and probably yes, they, that as well. They could do both. I mean, I think that's what we – I don't remember seeing food inflation. That's just sometimes we have short-term memories. I don't remember seeing food inflation the way we've seen it in the last year. And it just feels like a lot of – I mean, I guess if, if you're a company that you know you can make your make more profit, that why not sort of slightly reduce the size of your packaging or the size of the amount of the product in the packaging, slightly increase your prices. And, you know, if people are still willing to pay, then – that's your that's your business, right? They're not in the business of feeding people. They're in the business of selling their products to people. Yeah, they're in the business of maximizing the value for their stockholders, right? So it's the ultimate goal of those, uh, those companies uh, satisfying the financial markets rather than the consumers themselves. It's uh, the, unfortunately the rational thing to do uh, in this uh, in this economy. Yeah, I remember meeting someone once who, who said he'd always invested in junk food because it never because it's always a good investment. I think this was back, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago where people were becoming much more health conscious about this stuff and saying, well, you know, must this must be the end of junk food. It'll be the end of junk food. Well, here we are, 2023 and it doesn't feel like we're anywhere near the end of junk food. Well, it's true that the the, the food uh, industry has changed quite dramatically over the past 30 years as consumers have become much more health conscious and processed foods, junk foods have become less uh, popular, at least in the discourses. There are different segments in the market and the segments of the market that can afford healthier foods tend to have a higher income right. and lower income consumers will continue buying uh, junk foods, processed foods, uh, I would say, unfortunately, uh, in part because healthy foods, healthier options are so expensive. Fruits and vegetables have seen a, a tremendous inflation as well. Yes. Well, Yen, uh, thanks so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was reading this really interesting story over the weekend um, about Wendy's uh, sort of automating or bringing AI into their into their 
restaurant system, their takeout system in Columbus, Ohio. So here's how this is going to work. Um, you might be talking to a robot the next time you ask someone for your takeout meal at a fast food place. Uh, that's what Wendy's has planned next month. They'll be testing an artificial intelligence powered chat bot with the capability to speak with customers and take their orders. It's, it's a pilot project. It's called Fresh AI. It's powered by Google Cloud's AI software. It will launch in, as I mentioned, the Columbus, Ohio area. Here is uh, the CEO of Wendy's, Todd Penagor, on that pilot project. Yeah, no, Google's been a, a great partner and we're really working with them on generative voice AI and trying to figure out how do we create a better experience in our restaurants, first and foremost for our employees. How do we get our employees better positioned to work uh, on the grill, uh, make great food, uh, make it fast, accurate, get it out the door with a smile uh, and really take out that slowest point in the order um, process, um, you know, ordering at the, uh, at, the, at the speaker box and trying to make that more seamless, more frictionless, a um, lot less lost in translation. So we can really focus on adding value to the consumer to get them through the, uh, the drive-through faster. Yeah, that's Wendy's CEO, Todd Penagor, talking about this whole idea of bringing AI in basically to, to act as the, as the speakerphone person, right? So I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how it is that AI... Well, come to think of it, a lot of those, sometimes the drive-through could be quite quite the experience, but uh, I don't really know how the AI would make it much better or how you would correct it if you had to, but I, I guess it'll all work. The AI can pick up what you're saying and then you'll be asked to approve the order, no doubt. But it comes at a time when the fast food industry is really changing quickly. They're really moving away from the dining room setup. Uh, there are now sort of restaurants in the U.S. that are really just takeout places, no seating, uh, lots of automation, a lot less contact with staff, especially when it comes to ordering. Apparently last year, 85% of fast food restaurant orders were to go. 85%, that's in the U.S. at least, and roughly three quarters of all orders being placed are at drive through So you see it's been, you know, went from being kind of a family environment. My image of the McDonald's is always you went in and there was like the, the kids area and there was staff and there were lots of seating and you'd see sort of retirees sitting around talking and it was kind of a community place but i gather that's starting to shift right for for many reasons part of it is is staffing uh, staffing's become expensive so they're looking to cut down on those costs and also staffing is hard to find right i mean that's that's another part of it uh, adam chandler is a journalist he's the author of a book called drive through dreams which is all about the evolution of the fast food industry in the u.s and he joins me now thanks so much adam thanks for having me it's, it's amazing how, I, I don't know this is going to sound like an old person talking, but it felt like fast food changed very slowly for a very long time. That, you know, if you had walked into a McDonald's in 1975 and then went back in 1995, you wouldn't notice a huge amount of difference. And then all of a sudden, in the last 10 years or so, things have really sped up. What's happening? Absolutely, Ben. It's It's been really intense to watch the way that the fast food industry has changed. And there are a lot of reasons that that's happened. We're looking at uh, a big digital shift in the way that uh, people order their food and, and receive their food, how they engage with fast food brands in terms of social media. And you have more awareness now of food trends, things that are popular, things that are demonized than before. So fast food chains have to be quick to react to these things. And uh, it, it's really turned the entire industry into a really fast moving entity in ways that kind of undermine the way that it used to be. The interesting part of this is that if you chart, if taking your book as the template, fast food occupies a pretty important spot in 
American culture and in North American culture, well, in many parts of the world at this point. And when it shifts, it's sort of reflections of how fast society is shifting at the same time. It's it's a, there's a weird there's a weird relationship between society and fast food uh, in, in at least in this part of the world. Right, right. I I think there's a perception, which is understandable, of fast food companies like McDonald's, for example, being an enormous conglomerate, which it is, kind of dictating the way that people eat around the world. And that is true to some extent, but they also have to be reactive to the ways that people are changing their diets and changing their attitudes about things. So when it comes to something like uh, plant-based burgers or cage-free eggs, they recently in the last 10 years got rid of soda as the default in Happy Meals and pushed more fruit instead of French fries as sides. You see these kinds of movements and those are responses to what people are asking for and consumers are demanding. So it is receptive to the things, even as it is also a big behemoth in sort of throwing around its marketing weight. And its history is is relatively new. I mean, it's about a century now since White Castle popped up on the landscape. Uh, take me through those early days a little bit, because to understand where we are, I guess you understand where we ha- where we you have to understand where we came from. Right. The first chain, White Castle, started in Wichita in 1921. And it is sort of the product of a lot of, I'd say, righteous nervousness among the part of American consumers. They A lot a lot of people had read the book, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, right. and had heard, had heard about practices in the meatpacking industry that were meant to draw attention to the plight of the workers, but really gave consumers rightful weariness of what the food was like, of the quality of the food, what was going into the meat that they were consuming and and the problems around the safety of it. And so what White Castle did was it created a, a, a burger joint where basically you saw the meat being prepared in front of you in an open kitchen. They'd grind the meat in front of the customers. They would make a big effort to make sure all the restaurants looked exactly the same. So you had a level of, of familiarity, as you were saying, and of comfort when you walked into a place like White Castle and saw, okay, I, I feel confident that the food I'm going to get here is quality and won't make me sick. And that was a big thing at the time for consumers to feel certain that they were going to be okay when they dined out. You know, as the industry changed, they started moving away from those open kitchens and from grinding the meat in front of customers because fast, efficient, affordable food ultimately became more com- more more important to consumers than being able to have that transparency. And now we're, we're we're sort of moving back and that's that's also fueled fast food changes in the last 10 or 15 years is the rise of fast casual chains where you see the food being prepared for you and you can customize it in front of your eyes. So that transparency has become important again in a certain way. When we look at at sort of the the evolution of of the space itself, and this is what we part of what we were going to talk about today was just the changing the changing nature of fast food restaurants. They used to be places where you could sit down, and now we're seeing that start to disappear. And it feels like this is all we talked about this at the beginning. This is all part of this evolution um, within the industry itself. They're no longer at least. Fewer of them are the kinds of places that we would have recognized from our childhoods. For instance, the McDonald's with the play play area and, and lots of seating. Those are starting to shrink and, and drive-through is becoming really the main one. Why is that? Well, it hasn't completely happened yet, but we're starting to see the makings of a big shift where part of the reason why fast food has been so popular over the years is because it is affordable and it is quick. And 
in a movement away from having restaurants where you sit down, people are more apt to grab food on the go and, you know, have it delivered to their houses or to bring it home with them and watch something streaming on TV. The idea of fast food as a a sort of community place has receded a little bit. And some of that has to do with the pandemic and some of that has to do with technology. It's kind of been a perfect storm moving away from having fast food uh, dining rooms occupy this traditional place in kind of the American psyche. And it's not totally happened yet. You'll still go to plenty of places where you'll see people congregating uh, on Sunday mornings, having uh, breakfast or weekdays with um, retirees hanging out. Those places still exist and will probably always exist. But in urban centers in particular, you're seeing a movement away from that. And that's really interesting to note because there are not a lot of places left that do that, that serve that function. Journalist Adam Chandler's book is called Drive Through Dreams. It's about the uh, very interesting history of fast food in America. When you look at the um, at the changing nature, though, of the of the restaurants, we were just talking about the changing nature of the restaurants themselves. It's also really changed the workforce because I remember growing up in the seventies. Of course, McDonald's was the, was was a job. I mean, you went in there and it was an after school job. You know, if you watch Fast Times at Ridgemount High, they all many of them work at the mall in the fast food place, right? That's changed as well. The whole nature of the way the industry is built has changed, and I guess digitization is is going to be part of that. Absolutely. Unfortunately for workers, um, fast food was a the kind of job you had when you were a teenager working for pocket money. That's the trope from the 1970s and 80s that is very romantic. And it's where people learned kind of a work ethic that was important to serving their careers down the line. Uh, but today we've seen fast food jobs become more of a mainstay of people's lives. And that means not enough hours and not enough sick leave and not enough protection for the workers. So it really has changed into something else. And as there have been movements toward uh, better pay and more benefits for fast food workers, we've also noticed that fast food chains have been pushing automation and this digital transformation to make the businesses themselves less reliant on the workers. So to cut costs, to keep profits going, you have to kind of phase out workers to the extent that you can and to the extent that it's possible. Right now, we're hearing about uh, Wendy's is a, a sort of tinkering with using AI to take orders at one of their drive throughs That's going to happen this summer, which is a fascinating experiment in moving away from human-centric business. It really is fascinating to see what's going on right now. And we see hints of it in other parts of the world as well. I mean, I mean Singapore is a place that is notoriously notoriously short-staffed, right? They have very little, uh, you know, the real problems staffing places like fast food. So they've moved very quickly into, into automation. And I gather we're going to see that in a lot of places because it makes economic sense for, for the companies. Absolutely. It does make sense for them to do that. Um, and I, I do think at some point there will be some kind of backlash to it because people enjoy the human interaction that that happens at, at a lot of these places. These are, for some people, you know, part of a ritual for them. You build relationships and you know the staff there and it becomes a place to go when you don't have anywhere else to go. And that's that's meaningful. And that's meaningful in ways that you probably wouldn't imagine. But when I was reporting my book, I was out on the road and I would meet people who had a, a routine that was sort of defined by the opportunity to see people that they knew and liked, and uh, whether it was behind the counter or in the dining room. And so the elimination of both of those facets of the business seems to me as if it will ultimately take away one of the elements of fast food that kind of makes it enchanting and, and kind of quintessentially American. 
Take me a bit through some of the cool trivia in your book. I know that uh, there was mention of Jeff Bezos having worked at McDonald's <laughs> back in the day. Many did, but what are yeah. some of the ones that you found curious uh, that you you dug up for the book? Well, there's so many little bits that are are, are compelling to me. Um, you know, the, the growth of fast food uh, internationally has so much built into it that is interesting. And that, again, kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier about places like McDonald's and Burger King being monoliths and being big companies. But when they go overseas, they change their menus and they change the way they they do business in, in, in fascinating ways to adapt to what consumers want in other parts of the world. So some of that is evidenced in the menus. The poutine at McDonald's in Canada is a fascinating twist that you can't get anywhere else. And gazpacho in Spain. It's always been interesting to me the idea that you can get a kosher Big Mac in Jerusalem or a halal quarter pounder, which they call a royale because they don't use the metric system in places like Jordan or Saudi Arabia. So those ways of changing the way that they do business really give us a map of the world in a, in, in, in a unique way. And I've always found those bits interesting. In addition to those stories of, of the people who worked at these chains when they were growing up and became enormous successes, a lot of politicians. Uh, I think a lot about Paul Ryan. Um, he yes. was Romney's running mate. And when he was running for, when he was on the ticket for the 2012 presidency, he would go around talking about, you know, working hours uh, at McDonald's by a, you know, an old Hobart dishwasher and, and finding out what it meant to work hard. And those are cherished values. And yeah. so you look at someone like him and you, you, you feel nostalgia for find, yeah. a simpler past. You wouldn't find a lot of extra fries in the bag. I think of Paul Ryan was serving you. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, that is a safe bet. It's a, uh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I lived in Asia. Soy milk at, at KFC was a big one. You could get taro pies at McDonald's. Uh, they used to have to switch the menus because in, in different parts of the, the world, they don't really differentiate between an egg McMuffin and a Big Mac. It's just meat in a bun. Right. So why would you not serve them all day long? Right. It's, it's, it's the, the cultural uh, issues around fast food are interesting. Where do you think we're going with this? I mean, there's been, uh, uh, health backlash against b- fast food. There's certainly uh, financial and economic pressures. There's, you know, we live in kind of a different kind of society when it comes to our relationship with food. To some extent, it's very transient or fleeting. Uh, but here we are, fast food's still around. There's, you know, the Burger King down the street from me and the McDonald's, they're still packed. Right, right. This is kind of the 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 ground, the ground zero of where you see the pushes and pulls of a society figuring itself out. The dining room of a McDonald's is that place. It it is interesting to me because of that. You have uh, public advocates pushing for healthier food, but when they actually appear on the menus, people don't want them because that's not what they associate fast food with. They associate fast food with, I've had a long day and I want a burger and fries and just to kind of forget about it. Or I've got screaming kids in the car and I know a happy meal will solve the problem. It is curious to to, to note how... um, these chains have tried to adapt and how their core customers have rejected it. And I, I think that that will continue. I think we'll continue to see new items, more sustainably uh, sourced packaging coming into the mix. How are people going to use apps to order food ahead of time online, have it delivered and how that's going to change the idea that they're engineering French fries to make them more crisp and crunchy after a long journey in a car is a reaction to the way that consumers are demanding that they get their fries as opposed to 20 minutes later and a bit soggy. Last question, your go-to fast food item and the worst thing you've ever tried. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh man, how much time do you have? You know, my favorite, my favorite is my favorite is Taco Bell. I love Taco Bell. I'm a sucker for Taco Bell. It's very polarizing, and that's kind of what I love about it. Either yeah. you feel strongly in love with Taco Bell, or you feel very much against it. And I always get the Nachos Bell Grande. It oh, of course. Something you have to consume within five minutes because otherwise the cheese will make the, the chips super soggy and you can't eat it. And for me, that's a challenge that I'm I'm always willing to step up to the plate and try to do. For me, the worst thing that I've ever had, you know, what if the sh- one, one of the uh, McFrappes at McDonald's uh, I once had and took one sip up and just threw it away because it was just like in, ingesting a sugar bomb. And yeah. I could tell I was going to be crazy afterwards. So it was too much for me. And I have a high tolerance for all kinds of experimentation and all kinds of challenges when it comes to food. That was that was a bridge too far for me. <laughs> Adam Chadler, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. You know what's a great place for snack food? Not, you know, not not the kind of things that we see commonly here is Istanbul. They have great street food in Turkey. And uh, of course, all eyes were on Turkey last night around the world uh, because there was a huge election taking place. Now, just to set the a little bit, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been in power there as president and or prime minister for the last 20 years. And he's really reshaped the country. He's changed it quite significantly. Um, it's become quite a bit less secular. There was big economic growth for quite a while. That's kind of fallen apart over the last few years. There was that massive earthquake um, in the east of the country near the Syrian border uh, over the winter that that led to lots of anger about corruption and building codes and so forth. Um, so a guy, and he's also cracked down on, on opposition, uh, something fierce over the years, journalists, lawyers, you name it, have been jailed. Anyone who's been sort of an opponent of his, uh, many have been jailed or, or have fled the country. So it was kind of felt like he had a, kind of a tight grip on power and that started to slip away a little bit of late. There was a real belief heading into yesterday's election that he could actually lose, uh, which, you know, Last time they had elections about four or five years ago, uh, he got 54% or 52%, I think, of the vote. And there was, it wasn't close. He wasn't going to lose. This time around, there was really a belief that he, uh, that he might actually lose. Well, it turns out, uh, through his usual, he's quite an effective campaigner, and a lot of the system is kind of structured against the opposition. He ended up with almost 50% of the vote. Not quite. So they're going to have a runoff uh, at the end of the month. But uh here is uh, here is Michael Georg. He's with the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. He's a special coordinator for elections. They're going to monitor the runoff as well. For the preliminary results, we have seen this election is not over. Right. So they're going to head to another round on the 28th. But really, it looks like Erdogan has kind of found his way to win again, um, potentially. Now, why does this matter to us if you're sitting at home somewhere in Canada right now and thinking about, well, you know, Turkey seems a long way away to me. Um, They're a NATO country. They've often been a bit of a contentious NATO country because they kind of, uh, you know, the Turks have have often been at odds with some of the other major NATO nations. Uh, They have a coast on the Black Sea to the north, of course, uh, which is a big deal now because of Ukraine and Russia and grain exports. They actually have a lot of influence who can come in and out of the Black Sea. So that's that's a big deal geopolitically. And then they neighbor Iran, Iraq, and Syria as well. So, I mean, they're really at the center of things. And whoever's in charge, um, 
can have a per- quite an impact on global affairs. So we thought we'd get a bit more insight into exactly what happened yesterday, where this could go in a few weeks. Chris Kilford is a fellow with the Queen's Centre for International and Defence Policy. He was also Canada's defence attaché in Turkey uh, from 2011 to 2014. And he joins me now. Chris, thank you. I'm very happy to be here, Ben. This was a a very close election, not always the case in Turkey, obviously, but um, uh, it appears that Tayyip Recep Erdogan, who looked like his 20-year reign, might be coming to an end, uh, it, it lives to see another day, and momentum seems to have stayed in his camp, perhaps surprisingly. Yeah, I think so. I think if you picked up newspapers in the, in the weeks leading up to the election and in the days beforehand, most Western commentators were were saying that uh, his time was up after 20 years in power, uh, that the opposition was gaining strength. And certainly all the polls, if you if you followed the polling coming out of Turkey, you would have thought that it was game over for him. But as he always does, he surprised us, perhaps not with the level of support that he would have wished for. He, he won the 2018 election with 52% of the vote. Uh, this time around, he only received 49.5% or so, and that means we're now heading to a, a runoff at the end of the month between the two top contenders. So it's not over yet uh, when it comes to uh, who will be the president of, of Turkey going forward. Yeah, the, the, his opponent, the former bureaucrat uh, Kamal Kilic-Doruglu uh, as well, and, and who's sort of an, an, kind of an unknown figure. I'd never heard of him until this election cycle. What was the fight about in this election? Now, clearly it was Erdogan on his, with his record and a desire for change within the country, but that plays out unevenly, right, through through what is a massive, a massive country. Yeah, there was so many things on the agenda. First of all, uh, hyperinflation. I was in the country last year and you could see the impact of that. So you had inflation rates that officially were about 88% and really probably double that. And then, of course, we had the the earthquakes uh, earlier this year with at least 50,000 people uh, killed. And uh, everybody thought that with uh, with this uh, very, very poor economy and with the earthquakes and, and other issues, uh, Turkey's response to the war in Ukraine, all these things that that this would really put an end to what, you know, of 20 years in power. And and even then, in any democracy, although uh, people often question whether Turkey is really a democracy, uh, you know, 20 years for any government in power is a, is a long time. So all of these things sort of said, you know, led, led people to think, well, it is it is game over for him. But, you know, we we had so many surprises during this election. Ten of the 11 provinces that were badly impacted by the earthquake all stuck with Erdogan. You know, when I speak to many of my Turkish friends, this election saw them caught between, as we say, a rock and a hard place Yeah, about sticking with Erdogan or going into some very unfamiliar territory. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess because of it, with his in his 20 years in power, he's all but el- eliminated opposition to the most part. Journalists are jailed at, you know, at huge numbers in the country. A lot of leaders have fled the country. So there isn't really a vibrant opposition anymore. So it's kind of an unknown when you look at the other side of things. Uh, on the other hand, Erdogan's handling inflation is an interesting one because the earthquake has brought up lots of issues about uh, building codes and corruption and so on. But his handling of inflation has been truly odd because he's essentially lowering interest rates as inflation is skyrocketing. And even today, the markets, once it looked like Erdogan actually might survive this, started to respond in kind by they have very little faith in him. It's funny mm. that his country has more. Yeah, it is. And it has been a revolving door at the central bank because of his uh, 
you know, unique economic policies. I do have to give him his due, though. I mean, he came into power in 2003. The ACT Party, his party came into power the year before. And they came into power at a very difficult time. In 2001, the economy had collapsed. He, with uh, with his party, rebuilt the country. The GDP increased, employment increased. The country was on track to, at the time, we thought, join the European Union. And they had great a great vision for the future. And then a series of events came together to put the train off the track, so to speak, the attempt to remove Bashar al-Assad. It destabilized the region economically. And then, of course, we had a an attempted military coup in 2016, and folks are still undecided as to actually who was behind that. But nevertheless, people were killed, the country was destabilized, and we have an ongoing insurgency. So you can see this long laundry list of things that I have. I mean, it, it's a very tough country to govern. I think for most Turks, and you have to imagine that many of the young people have grown up with just seeing Erdogan in power, they're they're very afraid to to turn elsewhere uh, to to find some leadership uh, going forward. And and you mentioned the opposition. You know, the opposition has a difficult time. I would say elections are free in Turkey, but they're certainly not fair because the government dominates the media and the opposition struggles to get their message out. But nevertheless, you know, nevertheless. Um, uh, Kemal Kilic Darulu, he still managed to get over 44% of, of the vote, which was a big increase from, from 2018. Chris Kilford is a fellow with the Queen's Centre for International and Defence Policy. He's Canada's former defence attaché to Turkey. Uh, we're talking about the Turkish elections. We'll have a runoff for president for the top job coming up at the end of the month between uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's been in power for 20 years, and his main rival, Kemal Kilic Doroglu, who's a uh, 74-year-old bureaucrat representing six different opposition parties that have come together to try to unseat uh, Erdogan, which is no small feat, as Chris was alluding to earlier. Uh, the, the voter turnout was it was it up around 90 something something remarkable for you know if, if you look at a country like Canada and our and our very low vo- voter voter turnout these days. Yeah, it was it was about eighty eight percent, and I think that just points to the importance that people were putting on onto this election. You know, Kamel Kilic Darulu, he has been around for a while, at least ten years, and he's been in a lot of elections where he's had to face off against. Um, uh, President Erdogan, he's he's pretty much well. He's lost them all. Um, he didn't run in the 2018 election. Somebody else did, but but nevertheless, here he is, and he managed to cobble together six different parties and lead them up against Erdogan. And it's quite interesting when you do look at what the situation in 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 Turkey, these uh, this alliance that Kilic Darulu was uh, able to put together. It has uh, people like uh, the former foreign minister, Ahmet Davutoglu, former prime minister, in fact, of, of, of Turkey, running running against his old boss, Erdogan. So you, you saw all sorts of unique uh, groupings. Um, and I think I think the thing is, I think, you know, I said, or I, I mentioned this before, that my friends were between a rock and a hard place when mm-hmm. it came to this election. Either stick with Erdogan and his policies um, with some recognition for what he has done in the country, you know, the airports, the roads, all of these things that he has accomplished, uh, or go into unfamiliar territory with Kilic Daralu and a coalition. And anyone who knows their Turkish history knows that coalitions in Turkey do not do well. Governments do not survive. They last for a year or two before things start, you know, things start to break down. And it was a coalition that resulted in the 2001 economic collapse. So there's not a lot of choice on the table. 
I also think at the end of the day, there's not much in the way of policy differences between the two groupings that were content, the two main contenders, let's say, that were, were going after this. You still have the issue with Turkish Kurds that you have to deal with. You have issues in the Mediterranean that you need to deal with. Russia's not going away. The Syrian refugees, what do you do about them? So I think even if Erdogan had left, things wouldn't have changed that much. Although the rhetoric coming out of Ankara, which can get quite awful when um, you listen to President Erdogan, I think that would have been tempered. But I wouldn't have. I, w- I wasn't expecting to see a lot of change policy wise. Yeah, I guess there's, a, there's there are enough issues on the table for them right now that there can't really be a full on swing uh, in direction here. I mean, I, I gather the opposition was sounding a little more pro, you know, pro West, a little less antagonistic towards NATO, trying to sort of uh, build some of those some of those relationships. But if you look at why the rest of us should care about this, there there are a few. You know, distinct reasons. First of all, we're we're spending a lot of money in Ukraine, uh, uh, trying to support Ukraine through its war with Russia. Turkey's a big part of that, and of course, they're a major player in NATO, even though not always a welcome one. Yeah, well, I mean, they've been a member of of NATO since uh, 1952. We work very closely together. But we we still we have our own issues too. Uh, we have an arms embargo against the Turks right now, so we're not selling weapons to them, and that doesn't go over well. You know, when I mentioned that coup, that attempted coup in 2016, we have given a lot of Turkish citizens political refugee status. In fact, right now in Ottawa, there are almost six thousand files of Turkish citizens who are claiming political asylum in our country, and this this is uh, this is a big number from what is a NATO ally and what is a democracy, a so-called democracy. It's in the illiberal territory for sure. Um, But that speaks to the the challenges we have with with Turkey. But look, I mean, a lot of Canadians go there. Uh, The numbers are getting back up to where they were pre-2013 Gezi Park. Um, You'll recall there were a lot of terrorist attacks in Turkey in 2015 and 2016. It drove away tourism. We're getting back now to the numbers that saw like 200,000 Canadians every year visiting Turkey because it is a wonderful place to visit. I mean, there's so many things to see and do. These things are are beginning to you know to rebound, but at the same time, you can get you can get quite annoyed with with Turkey because we know that there are you know 38 oligarch yachts tied up in Turkish ports. Five million Russian tourists went to Turkey last year. They're continuing to trade with Russia, I should say, all the while while you know we are working hard to support Ukraine against. The, the 22 Russian invasion. So on the one hand, there are NATO allies, but on the other hand, as we saw, they were blocking Finland and Sweden from joining NATO. They're still blocking Sweden. So we have to contend with this. And I would only say that this is not new. You know, Turkey looks out for its interests like any country does, and uh, it can sometimes get quite annoying. Yeah, it often finds it has one foot in two. It has feet in either camps, right? That's a, that's mm-hmm. a, a clearly the case. Any, I mean, any thoughts? It, it seemed like, in terms of the tone of the coverage today, um, that a lot of this will depend on a third party, uh, a far right party, the ATA alliance, that got about five percent of the vote, and where those votes go. But that Erdogan, with his forty nine point five percent, looks like he's in pretty good shape heading into this uh, into this runoff in a few weeks. Yeah, I think that the third contender, Sijan Oans, his 5.3% or so will split evenly between the AK party 
and the CHP. I don't think it's going to swing in an, as, a, as a block to one or the other. If it did, I mean, if it all went behind Kilich Daralu, he would win. But I just don't foresee that. I mean, that would be, I think, uh, wishful thinking. Uh, and I would sense that President Erdogan will be with us until 2028 when he is not allowed to run again, at least for now. according to the Constitution. <laughs> for yes. Now, for now. Uh, Chris Kilford, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. This half hour, we're not going to talk about bourbon and we're not going to talk about beer, but we are going to talk about scotch. Probably not the kind that that song was written about. We've also been talking about fast food tonight. What are they, your what are your go-to what is your go-to fast food item? We talked about fast food in the last half hour and just how much the industry has changed with AI and automation and how the restaurants are changing. There's fewer and fewer seats and so on. And the whole the whole kind of atmosphere around how we buy and consume fast food has become much more of a sort of quick delivery pickup drive-through experience and much less of a sitting in a restaurant hanging out experience as it may have been in the past. Um, one listener says, my favorite fast foods are the subs at Subway and the sandwiches at Tim Hortons. Well, you can never go wrong with those, right? Pretty. And you could make, and you could kind of, that could mean just about it because you can kind of build them the way you like, right? Which is always good. Um, scotch. Yes. Let's go back to single malt. We're going to travel now. We're not going to actually travel to the Highlands because we're going to stay, stay here in Canada. But uh, coming up a little later this month, the uh, here in BC, there's going to be an auction, um, and they are auctioning off a bottle of Macallan uh, single malt, which is going for a, a. It's it is incredibly rare. It is incredibly rare. Um, I think there are only 288 bottles of. It's called the Macallan The Reach. There are only 288 bottles in the world. And one of them will be up for sale by the BC Liquor Distribution Branch this month for the auctions, $228,000 for the one bottle. Now, here's the catch. It's 81 years old. It's called War Whiskey. It was distilled during the war and then put in a cask for all these years. And... uh, and it, that's why it's so valuable. It's uh, again, and there's you know scarcity as well. There's only 288 bottles. One bottle at Sotheby's. Uh, they've sold the first bottle of this batch, the Macallan the Reach, a one of a kind edition for 240,000 pounds. So that's about 400 thousand dollars Canadian to an anonymous uh, U.S. collector. This price, by the way, of 288 thousand far out, far beats uh, the most expensive bottle that that particular organization, the BC Liquor Distribution Board, has ever sold. Uh, they've sold a few in the past around 110, 150, but this is of a whole different magnitude. They're expecting about 30 prospective buyers, uh, potentially from around the world, according to an article in a local paper recently. And I was curious about this, about this McCallan, the reach, because what exactly is it? And I've explained a bit of it, but how does it worth, how is it worth so much and who would buy it? What will they do with it? Are they just going to look at it? It comes in a very artistic bottle and with a sculpture and all this stuff. Are they going to drink it? Probably not, but AJ Bardwaj knows a lot more about this than I do. He's uh, known as the Whiskey Consultant, Canada's first certified whiskey ambassador, and uh, he joins me now. AJ, thanks for your time on this. Ben, it's great to be here. Nice to meet you. Yeah, tell me a bit about what a whiskey consultant does. Well, let me tell you, it all started out with people asking me, uh, you know, what to drink and uh, what are you drinking right now uh, where I was working and uh, long before you know I started doing tastings for people learning more about whiskey I uh, started enjoying it called it a side hustle if you will I went out to uh, Glasgow and I did a little course called the whiskey ambassador which is the first accredited course in scotch whiskey I got hooked 
I said, wouldn't it be nice if uh, if I went to my local uh, retailer and got this kind of information and service around the beautiful bottles that are on the shelf? And before you know it, people started coming to a course I put up, running on the weekend, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, you name it, uh, out on the East Coast. And yeah, that's it. The Whiskey Consultant, that's, that's what happened. So I deliver the Whiskey Ambassador Program. I do private tasting events. It's no longer a side hustle. And uh, I'm also the director of spirits at Iron Gate Auctions. So we're the largest wine auction house in the country. And I've been there uh, for a little while and it's just been a a wild ride. I meet great people. I learn a lot and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Tell me a bit, a bit, a bit about this, uh, the McAllen, the one, because it's the BC Liquor Distribution Board that is doing this auction. And uh, last I looked, Sotheby's sold one back in 2022. Sorry, McAllen, the Reach, rather. The Reach, uh, yeah. Back, back in 2022, uh, I, they sold out even rarer. I'm not sure why it was so rare. They sold it for 400,000 Canadian. And now this one's, you know, the prediction is it's up around 225, 230. Well, you know, so what's happening, BC is great. So what's happening out there is obviously there is an, uh, there's a market, there's an audience, there's a passion for Scotch whiskey out there. And not just any Scotch whiskey. This is a Macallan, first of all. Uh, second of all, yeah, they're retailing it at $228,000, right? Plus tax, right? I think yeah, it's 15% and bo- and out there. And bottle deposit. I think it's a yeah, dime so for a bottle, yeah. If it's okay with you, I'll, I'll loan the 10 cents for that bottle deposit if I can get a share of that. Sure. But um uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's basically the recommended retail price. And so, you know, you hit the retail market. uh, That's what's recommended. Once it goes to auction, you have to look at those auction details very carefully. So the one at Sotheby's, they did a great job. It also came with a little extra bronze sculpture as well that came on the side. But boy, in about nine months, it definitely that owner uh, sold at a much higher price. And they did well. Why not? It's it's an 81-year-old single malt single cask scotch whiskey okay 81 right it's, they call it the war whiskey right it's a war whiskey well yeah 1940 mm-hmm. uh, i don't know what you were doing ben uh, <laughs> not, not, not much you know? not much oh no. so yeah, but yeah well so it kind of blows your mind so like you know when i do a tasting sometimes we have like you know a 15 year old a 20 year old a 25 year old maybe even 30 year old and you, and you kind of sit with your group and you say well what were you doing 30 years ago 25 years ago now take this McAllen. Now, remember, I'm independent. I'm not here, you know, right. to praise McAllen. This is the bottle. This is what it's going for. It's it's up uh, in BC. Now, 1940, I think 81 years ago, 82 years ago, like what were you doing? It, it's hard to really fathom. So this bottle has a lot of things going for it. One, it's got the age. It's got the rarity. There's only 288 bottles ever produced. And it has the provenance. Okay, people know about McAllen. They know where it came from. And it's a really interesting story. If anything Scotch whiskey does for folks who love Scotch whiskey, and it's definitely a drink for the world, right? doesn't matter where you're from. I just taught a course in Scotland, right? Nine countries represented, including Scotland. And it's just brought so many people together, right? Because right. there's some, there's a deep passion for it. But the story is really important here. So they're really, if people aren't talking about the bronze sculpture itself, if, if you haven't seen it, Please go see a photo. It's beautiful. There's these three hands that are literally reaching out and holding this beautiful um, decanter that's been hand blown. And you can actually see the fingerprints, if you will, in the decanter. It's, It's marvelous to look at. I don't know what to tell you. That gets someone like me who will never get to taste it probably. I mean, I'd love to. I get a 10 cent bottle deposit. I put in my share. I'll do it for you. Yeah. Even even You know, I won't be able to taste it. 
even the yeah. folks at the BCLDB were, were asked, uh, you know, those who are selling it were asked, you know, did you get to try? And they're like, oh, no, of course not. Of course nope. not. This is, I mean, but these are sold. I mean, this is not sold as a bottle of single malt. This is sold as, as, as essentially a piece of art and an investment, right? I mean, this is something, I mean, the whiskey is the most important part of the whole thing, but it's, it's being packaged in a way that's quite, quite remarkable. Well, you know, again, that's, I think we've, many people have come to know whether you like it or not, McAllen is a luxury brand. Okay. And when you intertwine art and craftsmanship, you know, into your whiskey and your product, I mean, it's all there. It, it really is a beautiful piece. I actually hope somebody opens it and drinks it. Well, that's, you I know, was going to ask you that because I was reading about, about whiskey investment. Clearly it's, you know, the investable world around, around mm -hmm. whiskey has become more vibrant in the past decade Absolutely. or so. But, it, you know, a lot of purists are like, listen, it was made to be consumed. It wasn't made to be traded and stared at. It was made to be drunk. So drink Absolutely. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Listen, do what you want with your whiskey. Doesn't matter if it's twenty-five bucks or two hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars. You do what you want with your whiskey. You want to mix it in with Coke, you want to add ice, you do what you want. It's your whiskey, it's your spirit. Enjoy it as you wish. But yes, it is weird to sort of look up, you know, this particular whiskey and not see any reviews on it. Yep. It's really interesting not to get sort of all the social media around it. We really have to go by um, Christine's actual tasting notes and what she picked up from it. And this is what I like about it. This is what's interesting for the whiskey. We'll call them geeks for now, but also yeah. the official, the connoisseurs, like people who love it. If She talks about the hue, but she also talks about the dark chocolate notes, which is typical of a sherry cask, right? You get some dark chocolate notes, some sweet cinnamon and aromatic peat. Right. Okay. Peaty. Peat is not something people would think about when they think about Macallan today. If you've no. had a Macallan, you don't think of peat, but it re I'm really curious if that peat's really coming through because back in the day, they would have used peat to sort of fire up uh, for their maltings. They would have used it for as a fuel source. So the, the peat would have come in, but normally peat dissipates over time as it matures. So I'm curious to know where was this barrel? Uh, you know, how is it housed? How, how high quality wood was there? So it's really a lot more in there than I'd like, I really wish I could have more conversation with McAllen around that, especially Christine. Yeah. I'd love to speak with her about it. Because I mean, I mean the way you describe it, you you think of like a grandmaster explaining how they how they painted something, right? It's, 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 there's a lot <laughs> yeah, of questions about this. Yeah, how'd you do it? Yeah. How'd you do it? But again, so the, that alone, that, that peatiness that's coming through, that is definitely uh, liquid history. So, you know, if you want to, you know, styles change over time. And usually it has to do with, you know, the manufacturing or the production process. And this is a great example of if, the, if that peat is in there, that really is capturing something special. And again, 288 bottles. Ben, that's like, it. That one that's cast, that's right? not a lot. Nope. The cast might have been 500, maybe 700 liters. We don't know. Uh, but if it was a standard sherry, you know, 500 liter barrel, we would expect around 700 bottles. Like about 700, we got right. 288 plus whatever samples they kept to the side for themselves, right? Not a lot of this stuff out there. This is rare. This is actually rare. I was uh, interested to see that, that McAllen actually dominates the top 10 of most expensive, uh, expensive bottles. I think there's a, um, there's another, I mean, Bomar has been selling, there, there's another one in there from, a, from another company that's somewhere in the top, but mostly the top 10 is McAllen, these sort of very old, very well-designed products that McAllen sells to that super in that super high price range yeah absolutely so they, they definitely have that they, they capture that for sure you know the data doesn't tell uh, I, I see that definitely when i'm at iron gate auctions we see the data multiple databases we see what's happening and mccallan 
is a sound investment for those, you know, who want to, who want to do that uh, sort of thing. But if you've tasted a Macallan, you would also know that it's good. Like you would, like for those, now I'm not going to disparage Macallan or anything like that, but some people may not like a sherry cask, right? right. I'm not speaking about like people, folks like my wife who will refuse a sherry cask whiskey, right? But there's something beautiful in it. When you get those chocolate notes, those raisin notes, the sultana notes, remember it's whiskey's made with like, you know, barley, yeast, water, and then it's matured wood, right? It's really a simple three ingredients plus the maturation. Yet there's so much complexity that comes out. And you know what? McAllen has done a good job of not only marketing itself, telling its story, but it does taste good. So like, even if you have like me, like I've got a simple, a very humble 12 year old right here. Right. She can't move. There it is. It's nice. It's almost gone. Right. Like it's, it's, it's absolutely yeah. It, I, I was looking, reading this up, obviously, before we spoke about just how how active the uh, the investment area around these things has become. Not just for something this expensive, but even for things you know closer, you know, inordinately expensive by anybody's standards. But you know, the hundred thousand dollar bottles and so on. That this has become sort of uh, an investable in, investable area. How much has it changed? It seems to have changed quite a bit over the last little while. And who's buying this stuff? Do we know? Because often they're they're anonymous, or they remain anonymous. They usually do remain anonymous, and I think that's that's good for the for those who are buying it. There, you know, you want to keep uh, those clients happy, right? Uh, so I guess over time, you know, whiskey, Scotch whiskey, is obviously grown grown globally, especially single malt uh, Scotch whiskeys. And whiskeys in general, some of bourbons in the States are off the hook as well. Japanese whiskeys, uh, you know, really sought after. And I think it's just people's tastes have changed and also people see the value of it. So, you know, we go out, we learn more about something, how it's made, how long it takes to make something. It imparts a lot of value, Ben, right? Like, again, you think about how long, you know, in this case, an 81-year-old, but forget that. Think about an 18-year-old, a 25-year-old. That's a lot of time that's passed. And so we have this connection with time. Some people will say age means nothing, but I age every day and it means something to me. All right. Indeed. Every year it means something, right? I think about it. And whiskey does it's get that, better with age. It's reverent. And, <laughs> and does get people, are getting, people are yeah. getting in there because it's like rare. You can't get these bottles. So there's this, and, you know, for some, they collect because they enjoy it. Some people don't even know better that they're collectors. I'll tell you that right now. 98% of the people I engage with, especially around the auction side of my life, mm. it just, they kind of look back. Or someone told them, you have a big collection or you have a collection. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. They just have a passion and interest and they follow up. That other 2%, they're buying to invest. They're buying to maybe flip. Some of them, Ben, are very disappointed when they talk to me. Because they might have bought something like last year and they just expect it to go up right away. you know, Or it's still available at retail. And so it's available for even maybe less than what they think it's worth. So it's very hard to have those conversations, but we do, we have those honest conversations with people. Hold on oh. to it if that's what you want to do, or drink it, for crying out loud. Drink your spirit with some friends. Just don't, just don't drop it. Just don't drop don't. it. Just don't <laughs> yeah, drop so, it. Please don't drop Like, yeah. Ben, we're talking about spirits. Like, what do you drink? I yeah. mean, I, I can ask you right now. Yeah, I mean, it depends. I I, I still, it's, it's getting warm here, right? So I go back to the beer. That's what, beer budget. I don't buy, I don't, my dad's a big single malt fan. Um, so I was always a 
you know, getting him stuff, whether it was Irish or, or, or I, mean, I lived in Scotland for a while in Edinburgh, worked at a bar, I was telling you, and had yeah, to be yeah. sort of a purveyor of single malt. So I, it, my memory is very faded on it now, but I'll have to revisit it. I'll have to revisit it. And I could hear people, if someone dared put, uh, you know, put Coke in that, in that 81 year old Macallan, I could hear the yelling from, from Scotland already. I can hear the screaming. I'm telling you, they'll scream, but if that's your dram and you paid for it, you put all it's, the Coke you want in it. I don't mind. No, exactly. No, we should mind. AJ Bardwatch, thank you so much. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, Ben.